sloppy spoilers with your host, DT2. What's up, y'all? DT2 Comic Chat here. Welcome to another episode of Sloppy Spoilers. On this episode, we're continuing our review of the Riddick series, and we're going to do the second movie chronologically, which was The Chronicles of Riddick. A lot to say about this one, so let me call in my co-host. Welcome to David Nemesis Howard. How are you doing, Dave? Hey, Glad to be here. Love this movie. Uh, looking forward to talking about it. Uh, yeah, this movie. I, I just can't wait to it. Let's get into it. Welcome to Steve Shadewing Sellers. How you doing, Doctor Steve? I don't know that I would call myself Doctor exactly, but um, <laughs> I, I, I really uh, looking at Chronicles of Reddick. It's like this movie got a really bad rap, and I don't know why. Um, I've always enjoyed it. Um, Vin Diesel's great in it. It seems like they, you know, built the the world of Riddick in different ways, and I can't uh, wait to talk about it. Awesome, awesome, and welcome to Jeff, Doctor Fate, Bracy. How you doing, Bracy? Good, I'm good. Last time we asked the question, "Are you afraid of the dark?" This time we're going to learn about the gravity of the situation. <laughs> the gravity of the situation. The man has the dad jokes. All righty, so. Uh, we start off with some general thoughts. Uh, in doing my research for this film, I found out that the reviews are literally all over the place and they're all kind of extreme. So people, uh, critics in particular, tend to really, really trash it when it first came out. And now a lot of people love it. It developed a cult following uh, just like the first one. But there was one comment I read on, uh, I think it was the Variety article, that helped me understand because it's the same problem I had with Alien, Prometheus, and Covenant, and that is that what they were expecting from this film was Pitch Black 2. This is not Pitch Black 2. There would have been nothing wrong with a Pitch Black 2, and I actually would have wanted a return to that planet because the planet itself was fascinating. That The planet was a character in the first movie. But what they wanted, I believe, was a direct sequel to everything that happened there. And that's not what this was. This was its own thing, continuing the story with the two surviving characters, or three surviving characters, although it's one by the end, uh, uh, spoilers, uh, in this film. But I have to say, in terms of my general impressions, uh, I thought it was a whole bunch of things at once, but it's so enjoyable to watch because it is at once, uh, it has deep theological and sociological uh, uh, themes, and it makes you question what you believe, which is what all good art is supposed to do. If you've ever wondered what good art is supposed to do, it's supposed to make you take out what you believe and look at it. That is the function of art. If art does that, it has done its job. A lot of people don't like what they see, but that is what art is supposed to do. And so this uh, film does a really good job with making you look at uh, uh, faith versus science and religion versus uh, political themes and life and death and loyalty versus survival. And it's just got so many 
built in contrasting themes that are fantastic that are, you know, about real life, the things that we have to deal with. And that is the best science fiction, real life topics with a sci-fi backdrop. That's the strength of Star Trek as well. So that's what this film was for me. I can see some of its holes. I can see how some things could have been done, done differently. And yes, it definitely had some things I couldn't stand, like the Tandy Newton character, but I'll get there in a minute. But, um, but overall, I really enjoyed this film. I still enjoy it. I enjoy watching it. It's got the strength of Star Trek and the weaknesses of Star Trek. It's got the very real issues played out on a sci-fi world. And it's got the one world culture and the one group name, like the name of the air elemental is Arion. Is she the only one? Because she's the only one, that makes sense. If there's more than one, what do they call the other one? Like, you know, Chromion, Patreon, <laughs> you know, what, what's the other names? And then, you know, and then she gets put in chains that way. <laughs> you can't phase like an air ele elemental like John John's in the vision and be in no chains unless you explain that. But we'll get there. So overall, like I said, my impressions, I really enjoyed it. Um, it did <clears throat> one of the things that it's difficult to do, which is simultaneously expand the mythology and keep some mystery around a central character. That's really, really difficult in writing. And it does it really well. We want more of Riddick by the time we get to the end of the film. That's the thing. So my complaints and nitpicking notwithstanding, I enjoyed it then. I enjoyed it now. I enjoy it now. Uh, I might be able to understand some of the criticisms or whatever, but somebody, I read one article that said it was Battlefield Earth bad. I'm like, mm, what movie did you see? And no, 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 that's a completely unfair comparison. Yeah, no. Because Battlefield Earth is not even watchable. And this movie is eminently watchable and rewatchable. So let me hear just kind of your opening general thoughts. And then we're going to do a deep dive into specifics because there's so much here to cover. So much here to cover. Uh, Star Wars Nemesis, what'd you think overall? Yeah, you know, when I, when I watch this movie, if Pitch Black is the, the aliens, you know, or alien of this series, uh, this movie, Chronicles of Riddick, is doomed of this, you know, that's basically mm. what David Toohey was taking on. And that's mm -hmm. what I find so fascinating for me. Um, yeah, I love Riddick. You know, I, I love the character. I want to know more about him. But this movie introduced so many other things. And to my knowledge, we have never gotten uh, expanded universe books or comic books or, you know, a whole lot of information, you know, written about all of these things because we've got different races of humans. How did that happen? What happened with Earth? You know, why did they leave Earth? How did all these humans evolve in all these different ways so that we've got, uh, you know, like you were talking about elementals who are turning intangible and going places. you got Furians doing their thing. you got Necromongas. you got all these these races doing these things. And then you, then it opened up even more on the Mercs with the Slams. We got to see Slams and stuff like that. We saw uh, Helium Prime. You know, it made me want to see New Mecca. It's like, what is New Mecca about? What is mm -hmm. all, you know, all of this stuff all this new technology, the Necromanga technology is completely different than the Helium Prime technology. You know, absolutely completely different, a different power source. Uh, they introduced these mystical elements with the Underverse and everything like that. The mm -hmm. guy's ripping souls out of bodies. It's like, what the hell is that about? 
<laughs> you know, all of these things. And it's like, and we've got not only this movie, but an animated movie and a third movie that we're going to be doing. And we still don't have all of this answered. And I'm not frustrated by it. I'm hungry for more because he mm -hmm. keeps giving us a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and just gets more questions. I was like, just keep feeding it to me, man. It's like, you know, it's like I'm putting the, the you know, whatever in my mouth. I'm just force feed me that universe stuff because I want to know more. And, and you know, and that that's great because it's captured and held me all of these years, you know, and it's years between movies. And I'm still like, I'm thirsty. The minute I see something about mm -hmm. a new Riddick rumor or something, I'm on it immediately. They should have put DT <laughs> on the Alien series. <laughs> Imagine what he would have done if we let him have the xenomorphs like he originally wanted. Maybe we, we would have gotten the film that we've always wanted to see. Because the film I always wanted to see is what kind of world would spawn something like that. Because mm. anything that would spawn something like that, what kind of world is that? And and he could have done it. Steve, what do you think? Overall, general first impressions. Okay. Um, I think uh, when you want to look back at this, uh, I, I thought that um, Nemesis was going to hit it, but I will hit it instead. Uh, when he started talking about the original Alien. Um, when they did, when Cameron went in and did Aliens, his first thought was, okay, I'm going to do a, something completely different from what the first movie was. And um, I feel like David Tui did the same thing. Um, so the idea was instead of this thing that is like hard sci-fi horror, um, you know, Cameron decided, okay, I'm going to do basically military science fiction. Tui basically went even farther away than that and essentially basically said, okay, we're going to do like space fantasy, um, almost in the vein of like Star Wars or something like this. And I just think that that's amazing. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and I don't think that it contradicts like anything that we saw in Pitch Black, really. I mean, yeah, there are some things where they retcon things a little bit, but, you know, it's explained. I mean, you get to see how that develops. Okay, you know, Riddick uh, didn't get his shine, the shine in his eyes from a doctor. He, you know, he was born with this. He's a Purian. Okay, great. No problem. <laughs> I, I, I like that. That makes it more interesting. Because then, what you know, what is Furia? Um, you know, how are these Furians created? I mean, were they born? Did they evolve? Were they genetically engineered? What? I mean, all these things we, we want to see. Um, and yeah, we get to see all these vistas. We get to see Helion Prime. Uh, we get to see, you know, Imam and the where the Imam calls his home, and we get to see his family and all this. You know, we get to see Crematoria, which I, I thought was a really great, great idea setting. Um, and, and Tui, as is usual, really knows how to build these worlds and make them all believable. Uh, the world building, uh, you know, is really, really outstanding. Uh, Riddick is really develop, well developed. Um, you know, we see him going into another, uh, you know, type of adventure. We get to see, you know, him growing and, and changing and learning, you know, still. Uh, and, 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 you know, and he definitely has an arc and he reaches an end point. Um, and honestly, I will say I really got the feeling that Tui took uh, like some um, influence from Conan because, you know, here you have mm. him sitting on the throne, you know, as if this is his destiny to be king. And he's, you know, and he is this fighter who, you know, was a criminal and Conan himself was a thief. Uh, so, you know, all of this sorts of things. And you feel like there is a larger destiny in the life of this character. And, you know, and, and he is, and, and this story is about him achieving his destiny, you know, and eventually becoming king. And that's really, really interesting. And as a fan of like of pulp, uh, you know, fantasy and science fiction like that, I just feel like all the best things, um, you know, have been going through Tui's head, and he put them all in this movie. 
And it's just, you know, and it's just a lot of fun to watch. I mean, I, I just, I don't see where these people that are complaining about this movie are coming from. I mean, you can, you can nitpick a few things, you, but I really think that if I'm honest, if to the extent that it's been criticized, it's because it was a drastic departure and people weren't ready for it at that time. Um, I, I didn't have a problem with it. I just thought that, you know, the changes made sense and, you know, yeah, it was a different kind of movie, but if you want Pitch Black 2, there's a movie right after this and yeah. you'll get that. So, you know, but for this particular movie, I wanted to see more. So, yeah, I, 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 I have, like it. I have to say your comments about Conan are right on. I was going to save that yeah. to, to when we got the last scene. But to me, that scene is lifted like right from the end of the Conan movie, you know, and mm -hmm. it's like, and I could see Riddick giving that, that, that quote, you know, it's like, what is best in life, Riddick? And he'd just rattle it right off. So same, the same thing. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> another thing it does is it makes you wonder what's the difference between what Furians can do and what he can do. That's huge. That's huge. And just wait till we get to a planet where it's 700 at sunrise. I got a few things to say about that. All right, go ahead, Bracey. Uh, <laughs> Uh, general first impression comments. Well, just to uh, expound upon some of the things that you've already said here, what can Riddick do that the other Furians can't do? I know these things. What, uh, yeah, yeah, I lost my train of thought. All right. Uh, so yeah, hopefully we'll get along into some, uh, some of these details later on. I actually know uh, from reading the novelization where this film might have ended and how this might have actually wrapped up the series as a two-picture deal. But I'm glad that they didn't go that way. And I'm glad that David Toy didn't get a hold of Aliens. I'm glad he gave us a whole brand new character and a brand new Vista. Now, when I watched the movie, I can see where all these criticisms are far apart. I, I get it, because when I first started watching it, it wasn't that he did something so beyond like creating a Pitch Black 2. It was the fact that his his new world, because we'd gotten such a small snippet of it, I was expecting this sort of uh, dirty, lived-in, grungy, very much alien kind of world. It seemed very industrial, uh, very kind of space pioneer, space trucker, space blue collar. And then we get this vista, and I was not prepared for that. Uh, the first 30 minutes or so of the movie, I was kind of struggling once we got to Helio Prime. Because uh, it's like, oh, we elementals? What the hell? Like, okay, if if people live on different planets, uh, we okay. Riddick was something special. He was something weird by himself, some sort of mutant maybe. But now we've got people who turn into air and kind of float along. And like, it, this wasn't jiving for me. It's just too far outside of what I'd seen. But the movie won me over as I watched it because Riddick, as we said before, is just way too magnetic. And this new threat, the necromongers, were just way too doggone interesting. Mm. And on top of that, the production design is absolutely gorgeous. And by the time I got out of the film, I was all in. Uh, you know, uh, David Tui and Vin Diesel put a lot of thought. They, they're true collaborators uh, since the first film. And uh, one of the reasons it took so long to get this film going was not just because they wanted to put like a, a real serious budget into things and they were creating a world, but the two of them care so much about it. They put a lot of thought, a lot of heart and soul into this. And again, when telling the third movie, they didn't have the budget for it, but they still cared. They just like, I want to do a really good 
sequel to this series, even if we can't tell a larger, grander uh, scale film, because for some reason this film wasn't as well received as it should have been. So I just really appreciate the crap out of that, and uh, just the just the fact that there there's still some people of vision out there in Hollywood, and who are they're willing to wait if it takes years to get it done. Uh, and, and not to give us some sort of cookie cutter crap. And, you know, this is what separates people like Tui and Quentin Tarantino from a whole lot of other people, even though, you know, Tintin Tarantino is very derivative. But damn it, he's derivative in a really good way. So more power to guys like this. Well, you know, one of the best examples of how mainstream things go is The Matrix, because we saw Bullet Time. Mm-hmm. Once we saw Bullet Time, the Bullet Time was everywhere after everywhere. that. Every movie, every commercial, every TV show, everything's got to have Bullet Time. That's normally what happens. Same thing happens in music. You know, we want something new, we want something fresh, we want something cutting edge, but it's got to sound like what's already popular. If you make it sound like what's already popular, you say, well, we already got one of those. What else you got? So that's why all tours and creative people eventually free themselves from that system and just say, well, I'm going to say what I want to say. I'm going to do what I want to do. And this movie is the embodiment of that. And again, the more I analyze it, the more I look at it, the more it's not that I can't see the criticisms. I just don't know if they're justified. Mm-hmm. Because I'm objective enough to say, like when uh, my co-hosts were talking about what Prometheus really was, uh, it became very clear to me that a lot of us wanted an alien movie. And that's not what it was. It was a hardcore sci-fi film about the origins of life. Nothing wrong with that, but those were two ideas that didn't really mesh well, or at least he didn't mesh them well in the film. Okay, and those are two different things. And that's a lot of what's going on here because this is not just a story. This is a full-fledged story world. Mm-hmm. This is like this is like the eyes of sci-fi. Okay, once we get into this film. So the first thing I want to talk about is <clears throat> And it's 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 bookended in the film. Spoilers. First thing I want to talk about is Riddick's solitary nomadic nature. About how, because remember I told you last podcast, he's Logan. He's Wolverine, man. And he's used to traveling alone. He's used to moving alone. He works better when he's alone. He knows how to survive when he's alone. He can chameleon into his environment. He can, he's not quite MacGyver, but he's strong enough and quick enough to turn most things, most uh, mundane things into a weapon in his hands. But when the film opens, we see that he's just gotten used to uh, being alone, surviving, having mercs on his tail, as he says, and doing what he needs to do to blend in with his environment and not get caught. So I want to hear your thoughts on, because they struggle with the same thing with Rippling. Do you think Riddick works better as that nomadic, uh, you know, Ronin, uh, you know, uh, uh, solitary, living by his wits, traveling from place to place character? Because that's his vibe. Is that the best frame for him? Or does he work well with a team? Does he need a Kira? Does he need a Newt? Does he need a Hicks? Does he need a Robin? Does he need a Kitty Pride? So let me hear your thoughts on that. Start with Steve. Um, I don't know about need. I don't know that that's exactly the right word. I think he's a flexible enough character that he can work on his own or he can work with others. Um, you know, we've seen him, you know, work alone largely in this movie. I think it works perfectly fine. But at the same time, I feel like 
uh, the characters that we saw in Pitch Black, uh, for example, uh, and the survivors, you know, here, um, bring out sides of him, you know, that he might not otherwise bring out, um, you know, because we don't necessarily see that he cares about people until you start bringing up, like, for instance, uh, Jack, uh, Kira in this movie. Um, or, you know, he, he certainly had that feeling towards Fry, and he starts doing things that are, that you wouldn't expect to be in his nature. Um, and that's kind of where that comes out. Um, so, but, and I think that that gives him more depth. But it seems like the narrative of this movie is like, you know, Riddick is destined to be alone because, you know, he's dark and he lives in the darkness and he's a monster and, you know, you have all these people chasing after him and, you know, he, you know, death follows him and all of this. And, and, and I think there's, that those kinds of characters can be interesting. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with playing Riddick in that way. I, I don't know. I just feel like um, every now and again, though, I, I think that notion does occasionally need to be challenged, at least. Um, because I want to see him with people that are not necessarily like him. I want to see different viewpoints interacting with him so that, you know, some of that humanity does come out more uh, from time to time. I mean, even if they don't survive, you, you want to see them around because you want to see that he has a little bit of compassion if somebody earns his respect. Uh, you want to see, you know, him uh, showing mercy, you know, to that guy that, you know, he wants to kill. But, you know, they did him a good turn and he has to respect that. You know, those kinds of moments, um, I think, bring out the complexity of Riddick. And I think that at least every once in a while... You need to have that character, you know, who can who can bring that out of him so that we can see how rich and textured he is. But all in all, I would say Riddick is a very uh, versatile character with a lot of layers. And, you know, you can plug him into a lot of different settings and he would still work. I mean, just look at this movie. How different is this movie from Pitch Black? It works, you know. So um, and a lot of that is on the way the character is designed uh, and and how he's built and, and how much depth he has and how well it's written. So, I mean, as long as you have those things, I mean, I don't see, you know, really that he has a lot of limits. Uh, one thing I will say is that I never saw Riddick as monstrous. I always saw him as more of a wild card that you can't control. Yeah, he has a monster in him and he's trying to control it is basically it. Uh, but uh, I just, I just, because he's like Wolverine, he won't bother you if you don't bother him. And he's like Hulk in that way too. They just won't leave me mm -hmm. alone. And that's not quite the same as being a monster. The necromonger leader is monstrous, a totalitarian. A totalitarian. But he's also he's a, another version of the Borg Queen. Uh, Our way is better, and we're going to force it on you, whether you like it or not. But we'll get there. Go ahead, Bracy. What do you think about Riddick's nomadic nature? Is that the best frame for him? What, what do you think about all that? I like his nomadic nature. Uh, it does fit into the frame of classic heroes like the Ronin Samurai, uh, Wolverine, and even Conan, who did a great deal of travel, had many companions along the way. But until he finally had his own kingdom, he was pretty much alone. Uh, his companions, his great loves like Belette, would die off, or they would just part ways. Uh, Riddick works exceedingly well in this form as well, but we get the, the best out of him whenever he does have companions because they're the ones we're going to relate to the most and they do bring out the best in him and that's what we want to see because we're all rooting for Riddick even though we like this super cool badass that he is we do like seeing these elements of humanity 
brought out. It's just like the same thing with uh, uh, this Wolverine archetype that he stems from. Uh, Wolverine was almost as terrifying to the X flying into Berserker Rages, threatening to kill them if they got in his way. But it, it took a lot of time and patience and, and working with him to make him into a true hero and not just a, you know, a killing machine. So I like seeing that and having, uh, I don't know if you guys watch the theatrical cut or the uh, director's cut that I've, I've got both, obviously, but the, <laughs> in the director's cut, cause you know, if I love a movie enough, I'm getting all the materials. There you go, Steve. The, uh, David Toy brings a lot of these elements in of him having visions of, uh, this female fury. And I think much like Conan, his ultimate destiny is, uh, He's going to repopulate Fury. He will be the king. He'll be the the start of a whole new Furian race. And mm. I I think his ultimate destiny is not to be alone, which is going to be really interesting because uh, the novelization has a very grim end to this particular film. And as you know, novelizations uh, are often done at this as the script at a certain element, and then the script sometimes progresses. And that's why if you read the novel versus the film you will get different elements in there. And uh, I believe Alan Dean Foster worked on this just as he did like uh, the alien scripts and a number of the star Wars scripts. And so if you read his novelizations, the movies, you'll see a lot of key differences, which, uh, which are exciting to read. So go read the books too, if you get a chance out there. But yeah, I think that's going to be his ultimate destiny that he will refound uh, Furia and uh, spawn a whole new race of Furians. And I really, really hope that uh, these guys get the chance to uh, kind of finish that out because I'm dying to see it. And like you guys have said, uh, it's they've managed to continue to feed us bits and pieces of, of Riddick uh, without destroying his mystique. And that is so hard to do. But like you guys, I am so ready to see Furia. Let's see Furia come back to life. Let's see Furia be a force in the universe and the start of a whole new age in the galaxy. I'm all for that. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. And where he can go is if he's actually the progenitor mm -hmm. of a whole new generation of his race. It's really interesting. Huh, I'm going to mull that over some more. Go ahead, Nemesis. Uh, what do you think about Riddick as a nomadic character? Does he work better alone with a group with a, a Robin, a sidekick, if you will? Well, um, I definitely, I agree with Jeff. I thought the same thing, that eventually he's going to make it back to Furia and he's going to be responsible for some major event on Furia. Could it be him being the progenitor of a race? Yes. Could it be him undercovering some, uncovering something? Yes. I think he's destined to go to Underverse first. And I think a certain character who dies at the end of this movie may come back from the Underverse. Um, but we'll see about that. And we can talk about that in a little bit. Um as far as his nature, you guys hit it pretty well, but I think he's really close to another character who has hit the small screen recently, uh, whose books I started reading uh, last year, and I'm, I think I'm halfway through the second book, and I really enjoy it. I think Riddick is a lot like The Witcher. He's a lot like Geralt. Geralt. Geralt okay, yeah. I can see and, that. He, and he dips in and out of society. He's not super fond of it. And when he hits this, and but he's a, he has a monster in him that is used to fight other monsters, and society uses them that way. He's not overly fond of society; they're not overly fond of him. Mm. And, um, but he cares in spite of himself. And when he does come into society, 
you know that when, you know, just like Geralt, when Riddick, when those paths intersect, so it's like he's coming up for for breath and he ends up in society again before going underwater again. When he's in society again, he is one of those agents of change. He's a free radical where things are going to happen around him, you know, and, and I think that's really interesting. So it's almost like he doesn't really want to be part of it, but no matter what he does, they're bringing him back in, you know? So, uh, Just when he thought I was out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> yep. And, and when they pull him back in, things happen, you know, but ultimately uh, just like so many classic characters, from uh, Western movies, the man with no name or something, you know that nobody is going to be able to stay with this guy for a long time. That eventually, if you are around him for a long time, either you will part ways, like Jeff said, or you probably end up dead mm -hmm. just because of, of the chaos that surrounds him. But I don't think that means that he doesn't, uh, he can't be good with other people and he can't earn the loyalty of other people. And we're definitely going to see that in the third movie as well, you know, so. It, it happens. You know, so I just I, thought of a... I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I, ju I just thought of a great uh, analogous film to Riddick uh, as far as, like, his his journey and where I think he should or end up going. And it's one of my... It's my all-time favorite Westerns, the outlaw Josie Wales, that guy who is constantly being hunted. But he's the roughest, toughest, baddest dude in all the West. And even he eventually finds his peace at the end. So that's my hopes for Riddick. <laughs> Okay, now <clears throat> we're going to clean up a few loose ends and then we're going to get into something that spawned a whole world by themselves, which is not easy to do. We're going to mm. get into how Riddick gets back to uh, uh, Helion Prime, and that's because Imam uh, put a bounty on his head, and that's because he wanted him to come back and save him and his family from what we're going to get into next, which is the Necromongers. Um, this is another situation where I don't understand why every single character eventually has to be a red shirt. They did this in the Jason Bourne series. I'm like, mm. everybody don't have to be a red shirt, you know, and I understood the motivation and uh, it would have been nice to see them because we mentioned it last time, but if, if uh, Riddick is either Mal or Jane, Imam is definitely Shepherd Book. And it would have been nice to see their dynamic continue because they believe such vastly different things. But alas, that old red shirts are coming. So we see him with his family. We see him in a different context. We see uh, uh, just a different side of him. And we see him reaching out to someone that he knew could make a difference. And it was interesting to see Riddick's response to all that. So what I want to ask you guys is, what do you think about that whole setup? What do you think about Imam putting out a bounty and it working and they finding him? And So what do you think about that whole dynamic of how he gets back to Helan uh, Prime and we see New Mecca and we see what's going on with that? Did you think that was a strong plot device? Did you think that was cheesy? Did that make sense in the context of the movie? Uh, as far as I was concerned, uh, it seemed to me that everybody in the pitch black scenario was kind of every person for themselves, except mm -hmm. maybe Imam. But then when he gets here, he is kind of every person for himself. And I just found that very interesting that 
this movie always, this series always brings you down to survival. Mm. Every movie has a strong what would you do to survive theme in it. And this, you know, this situation is no exception. But did you feel like it was lame? Did you feel like it was cheesy? Did you feel like it made sense? That kind of thing. Uh, so let's talk about that. Start with Nemesis. Yeah. I, first of all, I, I'm not sure if this is only in the special edition or if it was in the theatrical edition as well. But um, Imam kind of expounds on, or expands on his reasoning. And I guess it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, Anarion and the Council of Elders there were talking about uh, a Furion that was, you know, prophesized to take down the Lord Marshal. And 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 so the story that they were telling lined up with what the Imam knew of Riddick's backstory, mm -hmm. which is kind of why he volunteered all that information. And and it came out that it was Anarion that actually had ended up, you know, floating the money for the bounty, because that always struck me as weird. In fact, I think I've seen both versions, and I don't think that was in there. I was like, how in the world is an Imam coming up with a million and a half credits? You know, so right, like, right. That, that's a lot of money for that dude. Um, at the same time, it was very convenient. I mean, we knew at the end of Pitch Black that he was probably going off a separate way or whatever. They had to find a way to get him back. Uh, I think they did their best. Um, I like the bounty hunter scene. I, I think it really establishes even more so how just how deadly he is and mm -hmm. how he can think out of the box. That was the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. Here's a man armed with two knives who takes down a three-man crew in a spaceship. You know, it's like, and, and it was believable too. That's oh the other part. Yeah, yeah. And it was believable. You watch it, you're like, yeah, if I was badass enough, I could probably do that too. I'm not badass enough, but you mm -hmm. know. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it was pretty crazy. It was like, I was watching that going, okay. So um, yeah, I see the criticisms of it, but uh, I think some other scenes explain parts that were weak. And it made sense the further along the movie went, like Jeff was talking about that as well. The further along we got in the movie, the more I began to understand because, again, to see these elements. Uh, in the expanded edition, we see the Furion, you know, when he's coming back toward Helium Prime and he's in cryosleep, we see the Furion priestess talking. Um, so we're getting that information. I began to understand exactly what was going on. So that made a lot more sense to me. Okay, okay. Go ahead, Bracey. What do you think about all those elements? Yeah, the um... shoot, just totally lost where I was going to go. <laughs> uh, what are the elements again? I don't know why. I just the totally... elements we're talking about: Imam putting out the bounty okay, on yeah, Riddick yeah. and Ariane. Weird, weird how that just kind of jumped out of my brain. No, for a you have so, so much guru knowledge that sometimes <laughs> you, know, you got to organize it all. Yeah, you know, like got to get my data tree going. Like, uh, what file was that in again? Uh, for me, that made perfect sense. I had no problem with that at all. Because thinking about the type of character Riddick is, mm -hmm. and the fact that he just wants to be left alone, he's going to go hide out in some desolate world somewhere, that made sense to me too. And so what's the only way to get him back? If the only person who knows where he is is Imam, mm -hmm. and he has knowledge of him, and he passes on to Arian, and she floats the uh, the bill. And she does make a, a, a little statement about that nemesis to give it to you. He's like, when he, when he holds the knife up to her neck, he's like, you know, if you kill me, like, who's going to call it the bounty? So that kind of lets you know, it's like, wasn't really Iman's idea. It was her idea. But putting Iman's name to the bounty, 
he they knew that would bring Riddick back because he is a man of action and a man of vengeance when you cross him. And, yeah. and that's why I've never considered him a monster in the series, not even the first film, because it's very evident that this guy doesn't really he doesn't really go after the innocent. Now, he might leave you to die because he believes in survival. Yes. He, he likes people who are strong. He likes people who can take care of themselves. That's what impressed him about Fry when she made it to the ship. It's like, okay, you pass the, you know, you pass the Darwin test. Come on, let's get off this rock with all these crazy monsters. So he doesn't go out of his way to uh, uh, assault the innocent. But if you cross him, and it's, it's shown time and time and time again, if you cross him, he is going to get you. Uh, in every film, he definitely shows that. So, and especially because they had made this connection, and I like how he's saying that in his voiceover. He's like, you know, I guess there's no such thing as friends. That's what I get for letting anybody get close. And he's really, really pissed off at the moment. And yet, he doesn't just kill Imam right away when he gets to you. He gives him a chance to talk. He gives him a chance to explain. So again, we see he's not just a monster. He's not just a killer. But there is really no other way to get him. Like, if you send him a message, and, you know, because he and Iman even had, like, a, an argument about this. You know, the worlds are ending. He's like, oh, you know, it had to happen sometime. No biggie. He's like, but they're going to kill this planet and everybody. My family's like, hey, you know, it's not really my fight. You couldn't just send him a telegram and have me like, oh, let me drop everything and come help you out on your planet. That's not how the way he works. You have to get his attention, and you have to get his attention in a way that is just irrefutable. And so for me, contextually, this scene works out perfectly. The, the whole machination to get him there, it's the only thing that would have worked. Okay, that makes the most sense to me. You have to get his attention, and you have to get him to react. And it wouldn't have, mm -hmm. you, know, you can't send him a text. You can't send him a postcard. Wish you were here. Hey, could yeah. you come by? You know, we're having Kalula's right. Okay. All right, go ahead, Steve. What do you think? Uh, all those same questions, the setup, uh, the bounty with Arion, the connection with Imam, Imam and the Red Shirt family gets on my nerves. But anyway, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I, I will say that as far as the Red Shirt thing, yeah, I don't know why everybody is a Red Shirt in these movies. Have one character survive. Um, no, as far as the bounty and all of that, um, I, I'm kind of with uh, Jeff and uh, over on this one um, because I watched the unrated version the uh, same as I think Jeff did. And uh, they did talk about how um, it was the uh, it was Arion who set the bounty and all of this sorts of stuff. Uh, so I'm, I'm yeah, I'm kind of OK that, yeah, she dragged the information out of Imam somehow and then she used it to, to set the bounty and she was the one who did this. OK, I also buy that. Yeah, you've got to get his attention somehow. But I think more than that, it's how do you convince a guy like Riddick, you know, to fight for you? Like there, there, there's no way like, okay, even if you send a message, you know, he's going to say, yeah, that's your, that's your business. That's not my business. You know, why do you, why am I going to risk my life fighting these necromongers for you? What's in it for me? Like he's, that's basically what he's going to say. And he's just going to leave. So you have to bring him in in some way. So yeah. Um, you know, motivating him to do that by putting out a bounty and then getting him over to Helion prime in order to get the bounty off of it. And then you work out some deal with him when he shows up. Okay. I guess that's fine. I don't have a, have a real issue with that. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think it's just one of those things. Riddick's just one of those characters that, you know, and I and I will say that um, as one of the aspects of the red shirt thing 
that I think um, does work is that sometimes you need a character to die in order to motivate Riddick to do anything at all. Because <laughs> if you don't, he's he's got nothing. He's got nothing. I mean, it, it, it's really the death of the Imam that uh, later on is that that really got to get him invested in this. That in the hope of springing Jack out, out of the jail. So those two things are the only reasons he's really fighting for the most part. Um, up to that point, it's just like, you know, uh, the sun can, can go and destroy itself. You can all die and I don't care um, because, you know, I got my own problems. I think there is something else to the red shirt aspect. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but just like Pitch Black, where, I, you know, in the last podcast, I said that everybody that dies failed a test somehow. That seems mm-hmm. to be a constant theme around Riddick is that if you fail a test, you 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 die eventually. Yeah. Well, the, well, the Imam failed a test at the very end of Pitch Black, where he was willing to to just leave him. And to be perfectly honest, Jack fails a test in the middle of this movie when it's revealed that she joined up with Burks. Yeah. You know, and it's like, and at that point, you know, you're kind of like, oh man, Jack may have just sealed her fate. You know, whether <laughs> you know from a karmic standpoint, you know, it just seems to be one of those things. I don't know if it's on purpose or not, but it does happen. So. We're all being yeah. judged by Riddick's standard. <laughs> Incredibly high standards, yeah. And, yeah, and as you, as you say, yeah, Jack does end up failing it later. Um, and I think that, oh, yeah, one last thing I was going to mention about the Imam. I, I think that him being on that on the pitch black planet changed him. Um, mm. I don't think he comes away the same Imam because now he's somebody that has to live with having survived. Um, yeah. And he has seen what Riddick had to do to survive, and he realized that all of his prayers and all of his faith gave him nothing all it ended up doing was that the people that he was charged to protect all ended up dying so i think he's kind of realized look there are just times uh when things are bad when it's not enough just to pray and it's not enough just to put your hands in god sometimes you have to put your hands in the devil and well, look at case, it the devil's riddick well look at how it is when when the attack is happening he tells his family don't tell anyone don't take anyone i'm just getting us off the planet like everybody else will just have to figure things out for themselves. And that's kind of the attitude he had at the end of Pitch Black. He probably assumed Riddick was dead because you could hear him yelling out there. I was like, I was like, come on, Fry, let's go. But he has changed. I agree with you, Steve. He's changed. He's become a realist. Yeah. 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 Definitely learned some hard lessons. But then again, when you live like Riddick, the question is, could you afford to take a family with you? Mm-hmm. Uh, two figures I want to mention, and then we're going to move to the next thing. First figure I want to mention is, uh, Paul the Apostle in the Christian New Testament uh, made comments to the effect of with a kind of life he had to live. He said, I could have gotten married, but uh, it's not really fair of me to drag a wife and the children around in this life because I'm gone all the time. I'm arrested. I'm in and out of jail. I'm beaten up. He's in life or death situation. And he said, you know, it'd be better for me to remain single with the kind of life I have to live. So in all fairness to Riddick, that's actually more honest than it is monstrous, because if he does have baggage around him, like we said, he eventually you eventually are going to leave or get taken out, Mm. which leads me to my second person of comparison, which is my favorite character, Batman. Mm. Riddick's life is what Batman's life would be like if they wrote him right. So they only write Batman with loss when when they're ready to let the Joker do something heinous again. If you think about it, the only character that gets away with multiple 
stuff is the Joker for some strange reason, which is why I get some on my nerves, but I'm not going to rain on that right now. But the point I'm trying to make is that if you really lived Batman's life, it would look more like Riddick's than it does. You wouldn't have an army of Bat family. You wouldn't have 12 people around you. Alfred and Signal and Batwoman and 14 Robins and umpteen Batgirls. <laughs> it would be more like Riddick. It would be more like that. And so, like I said, just kind of in fairness to him as a character, like, you know, how else should he respond? Because Jack slash Kira was mad at him and he was like, I have mercs on me. I'll always have mercs on me. Best thing I could do was get as far away from you as possible. I thought that was the most honest line in the film. Yeah. Because there's someone who understands the kind of life they live. Remember I told you, I always like characters who understand what situation they're in. You don't have to like it. You just have to understand it. That's how you survive. That should also show the selfless side of Riddick, which was interesting. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because he, he did the thing that Clark from Smallville kept trying to do, you know, I'm trying to protect you. I couldn't tell you my secret. I don't want anything happening to you. Then you should have left Smallville, dog. That's the thing to do. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> which leads us to the next subject, which is we could do a whole pot on this. And that is the Necromongers themselves. Ooh, Holy yeah. cow. I love this whole everything. They assault you the same way the Borg do for the same reason. Their leader thinks they found a pocket of perfection and now they're going to force it on you. Whether you like it or not, they're going to assimilate you. But instead of assimilating you with technology and biomechanical parts and bionics and nanites, they assimilate you through their kind of religion. And it also, I mean, it has so many different elements. It's totalitarian. But it's uh, cultish because it has an experience that the leader has had that they can't really prove that they had. But at the same time, they have phenomenal cosmic powers that other people don't have. So while he may not be able to prove the reality or existence or the merit of an underverse concept, he can do stuff that's soul snatching, that teleportation. He can do stuff that the rest of them can't do. So that comes from somewhere. And it's just so brilliantly done because it speaks to the power of charismatic leaders. Do you follow them voluntarily? Are you seduced in following them? Because remember, there's a, a scene where basically they have uh, giant marshmallow bunnies that get in your head and indoctrinate you. So once mm. you go into the chamber with the marshmallow bunnies, they make you become a necromonger. But we know that converge is not complete, just like it's not with the board. You can still come back and be you again. But they give you a choice. They're like, you know, believe or die. What kind of choice is that? Bow down to our system or we gonna wipe the planet out. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, and uh, my second favorite line is when I forgot his name, he says, I've done terrible things in the name of a faith that wasn't mine. I love that line. So the necromongers, mm. man, they, they appeal as villains and antagonists on a variety of levels. They've got world-spanning interstellar technology. They've got uh, some level of plasma or sonic weapons. I can't always tell. I'm sure Jeff knows whether they're they're (laughs) plasma-based or sonic-based. But they pack a punch. And they uh, are relentless. They're just relentless. They're like 
they're like, you know, ants marching through the galaxy, messing up everybody's picnic that they can. I love them. I love the necromongers from start to finish. Uh, I love how the leader is scared. Mm -hmm. He's scared of Vako more than once. We see that. He's scared of Riddick. We see that, which means there's some truth to the prophecy, which, you know, no matter what kind of power you have, you can be deposed. And he is. And so I just, I just, I just love them. Uh, I love the aesthetic. I love the three-face aesthetic. And I forgot which mythology that comes from because they use that with the Living Tribunal in Marvel, but I'm sure Jeff knows. But um, I, I love that aesthetic. I love how uh, the, uh, it's also reminiscent of ancient Egypt, at least as we tell the story today. Because mm -hmm. when Moses was delivering the Hebrews, the big thing about in the Cecil B. DeMille movie, the pyramids and the Sphinx features, uh, uh, statue symbols were monuments, monuments to the Pharaoh. That's what this guy does. He's got monuments to his Pharaohism. I just, I, just, I told you we get your whole pot on this. I just love these characters. So now I want to hear your thoughts. Let me know what you think about the Necromongers. We're going to start with Jeff because he's got, he's got 10th level deets. You know how some <laughs> people are 10th level black belts. This man is like a 10th level detail sci-fi horror guru dude. We, we need yeah. to give him the helmet of Naboo. <laughs> Organize all them thoughts. Go ahead. I'm sitting in, Met I'm sitting in Metron's chair right now. Yeah, I, I love the fact that you uh, talk about his uh, his idolization of himself. I mean, the very first shot we get of the Necromongers is his face on his spaceship flying in over a planet. Like It makes as much of a statement as that Star Destroyer coming over us with the first Star Wars film. It just really sets the pace right there. And as I mentioned before, I love the production design on this, like the, the richness, the difference between the Necromongers architecture and the architecture of Helio Prime, which is made out of many cultures and many faiths and many religions. Uh, so beautiful. And to see the stark contracts that like, you can see some of the Egyptian trappings and like all these kind of pleated lines. And then you have like these gear like uh, sawtooth protrusions. Uh, so you get a little bit of Giger in there too. Uh, it's just really, really amazing. And the, the level of their technology is different than everybody else. Like, you know, the, the Hilo Prime technology feels uh, kind of Star Wars, kind of new Battlestar Galactica uh, that they did as a TV series. It's somewhere in there. But the Necromongers, the energy that they're using to power everything appears to be gravimetric. You'll see this distortion under their vehicles. They don't, they don't typically put out like these energetic fields behind them to create the ionic thrust. That the other ships do. Uh, you'll notice, like when they, they, uh, there's a scene where they bring them out to speak to the quasi dead, and Riddick gets pinned down. That's gravity being increased upon him. Uh, the the devices that uh, that terminate planets, they they send out these gravity waves, and they even have that in their tiny little staff form that just flattens the whole contingent of soldiers. Just some really cool stuff, and I love the way, like when they uh, when they get held, hit by the uh, the gravity guns, they just people go flipping through the air. You can tell what a crazy impact it has, that it must just be wrecking them on the inside as well as the outside. And then there's the second part of their technology that's so cool. It's the death technology. Now, I'll disagree with you. I think they do have proof of the existence of the universe, although they may or may not understand what it is. They think it's a universe beyond the veil between life and death. 
In fact, they call the the Lord Marshal the Holy Half Dead. Mm-hmm. But everybody is in certain phases of death. Your typical necromongers, well, you know, they get suspended by these doggone spokes in their neck as they're learning how pain conditions them against other pain. But that looks pretty damn lethal, to be honest. So maybe they're just like maybe like a tenth dead, you know, because we can see they have a, a remarkable tolerance to pain. The guy's sitting there with a knife stuck in his back uh, for the you know the first third of the film until Riddick takes him out. You've got the uh, you've got the guys who can sense life, the guys, the lensers with the big face plates. Mm-hmm. They can feel the presence of living things. Uh, you've got the uh, the quasi dead, who are like their their savants or their uh, or their shamans. Uh, who can tell, uh, communi- who can communicate uh, somehow uh, through the aether across distances. This is their communication system. You'll see Vako and Dame Vako communicating this way. And these things are, you know, like maybe three quarters dead. So it's really fascinating. And the Lord Marshall himself, he's not so dead that his, his physical form is kind of degraded, but he's got this weird, exciting power where like his soul can step out and act as a second form of himself. And that just makes for some really cool things. And because it's the spiritual essence, he can rip your spiritual essence right out of you. And again, that's something that I had trouble with initially, this this level of mysticism from a movie before that was very grounded in hard sci-fi. Mm-hmm. But the more I got into it, the more I loved it. I just love this culture that they've built here. And the craziness of it. Now, this film was... 2004 I believe and so with it taking place not too long after 9-11 or maybe it was the I think it was around that time I couldn't help but be thinking about like here you have this Gene Roddenberry kind of paradise in Helio Prime and we have the necromongers so what's really on people's minds at the time Uh, they're thinking about terrorism they're thinking about jihad they're thinking about these radicalized forces if you think about uh, the radical Islamists or even going further back to the Spanish Inquisition, these types of religions that were like convert or die, those were your only choices. And so once again, Pitch Black this, as a series continues to be about choices of morality and how religious morality tends to affect the players in the story, whether you have it or not. And uh, I just love this really crazy juxtaposition because now with the Imam dead, Riddick starts having these ideological exchanges with the Lord Marshall, this man who's obviously his deadliest of enemies because there's this prophecy involved now. And it's like one of us is going to have to kill the other. And yet they have some pretty interesting conversations along the way, which uh, will lead to further development of Riddick's character in the long run. So just the, I'd love to know how the the death technology ties in with the gravimetric technology. And I, I come up with a theory just on the fly. I wonder if the underverse is going to be reached by passing the event horizon of a black hole. It's Ooh, maybe that's where this comes from. Like, you know, we're going to a new universe, this it's underverse. Dark energy. Uh, yeah, like the dark energy, dark energy, the dark matter. So, uh, like, I, I, I kind of like, uh, like I said, it just occurred to me talking about it. I was like, ooh, that would be a really cool idea, something we hadn't seen and explored, and that would explain the tie-in between the two. 
Uh, but I can't wait to see where it goes because I want more of these guys. The, the third film just gave me too much of a little taste when I want so much more of Vako and Riddick and that whole society. Now, I'm going to talk in a second about my least favorite character in this whole entire film. But we're going to go ahead on and pass it to Steve. And what do you think about the Necromongers and everything they represent? I think it's a really fascinating society. Uh, and like I keep saying, um, Tui is a brilliant uh, world builder. There's no question about it. I mean, all the stuff that Jeff laid out, I, I agree with. Um, in addition to that, there's a culture behind them. So mm -hmm. it's not just it's not just that, okay, you know, you have these people that, that have the defined roles. You have a nobility. You have an underclass. I mean, you have strata between them. You know, all of these things are thought out. Um, and they have cultural norms and cultural rules. You keep what you kill. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And that's a really, really interesting idea. It's like uh, Riddick goes and kills this one necromonger um, and he takes his dagger and, and, you know, and it's like, no, you keep it. You earned it. You, you beat the guy. You killed him. You, you keep what you kill. And, and this is ends up being the foreshadowing to, you know, how he ends up taking uh, over the necromongers at the end of the film. But, and all of that makes me wonder, you know, um, they said that there were six Lord Marshals uh, prior to the end of this movie. And, and I keep wondering, um, going by their rules and going by the idea if they keep where they're killed, did all of these Lord Marshals get their position by killing the previous one? They, they do say like, uh, works. they do say that I do hope the Lord Marshal gets promoted soon. <laughs> yeah. Battlefield promotion. As promoted to yeah. full dead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Promoted to full dead. Yeah. So, so I imagine that's probably how that works. That's interesting too. So it kind of makes you, so there's a history uh, they have all these previous people that have been, you know, in charge and they all did all their things. You know, all of these, they have the first Lord Marshall that discovered the Underverse and, and all of these things. They, they really put so much thought into that. Um, I like the way that their army is set up. Um, there, there's an element of, uh, of, of Greek mythology to it. I feel like the whole thing with the prophecy um, is very Greek tragedy with the idea that you have this prophecy that ends up bringing about unintentionally the doom uh, of the person trying to prevent it, um, so you, hmm. you know you have that aspect. Um, you know you have the, the the soldiers, and it looks like like in a way they're kind of inspired by ancient Rome. They're very disciplined. Mm -hmm. You know these are these are they, they have a definite way of doing things. So you know in addition to all the stuff with the you know with all the telepathic bunnies and and all the mysticism <laughs> and all these other elements, and there's their political scheming. I mean you have Dane Vaco pulling her schemes and. I'm, I'm sure there there are other people doing their own, and 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 there are definite you know differences of opinion you know from the people that are from Lord Vaco who you know is trying to be the loyal and, and honorable soldier you know to Dane Vaco who is kind of like the Lady Macbeth of the whole thing you know you have that other guy who turns out to be something else and you know has been playing them all along. All of these characters have different perspectives, despite the fact that they're all part of the same fate, as it were, and so. All of this is really fascinating, and there's so much depth. And yeah, I, I think that one movie is not sufficient to cover this. We need another Riddick yeah. film so that we can see all of this brought to a close, so that we can see more of the Necromongers. We can see the Necromongers' world. We can see what the Underverse is really like, because all we're seeing is like the tip of the iceberg of a very fascinating society. And 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 the threat level, as you say, is really through the roof. I mean, you are scared of these characters. You are you do not want to be converted by them, uh, and they are uncompromising in the same way that Riddick is uncompromising. 
it, it, it's, I mean, just, I am just blown away by how well thought out uh, this society is and how much work TUI uh, put into making it real and believable in a span of only a couple of hours. Oh, now, DT. Uh -huh. the, uh, the three faces, that's uh -huh. typically found in Hindu culture. And if we relate it to all this other religious stuff, mm -hmm. uh, you have the wheel of karma and reincarnation in there. So okay. that's something to think about. Okay, okay, okay. I knew I'd seen it somewhere. Uh, I'm finna do the, the Lord Valko, Dame Valko thing in just a minute, but we're gonna turn it over to him because I'm just telling you that rant coming up, so just get your rant. You Warning, know, rant ahead. Ready. That's right, you know, you, Captain America throws the mic because it's fitting to be rant time in a minute. But go ahead, Nemesis, let's hear your thoughts on this fascinating necromonger culture. Yeah, I think Jeff and Steve really hit on a lot of uh, what I was going to say. Um, I will say that um, I found the jihad element of this fascinating, especially since he reversed it. Um, yeah. Yes, this 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 society was multiracial, multireligion on Helium Prime, but the main character we're introduced there is the Imam, you know, so immediately kind of associated with Islam, and yet there's another religion coming in with a jihad against this planet and they're and that's mm -hmm. what they're doing they're committing jihad that way um that's right the technology and everything is absolutely fascinating um i agree with jeff on everything he said about that i think the most fascinating aspect for me was the death technology though mm. you know this idea and i could definitely see the influences having been a DD player for most of my life you know there's a whole necromancer version for that but yeah. also having played Warhammer and Warhammer 40K, you have the Necrons in 40K, which are undead robots, basically. And a lot of that is in the Necromongers. So I could see David Tui's influences there. And yet he took those and paid tribute to them, but created something new, which I think is fascinating. You know, I always love when, when creators could do something like that. Uh, so much so that one of the latest stories I'm writing, I took that whole concept of, you keep what you kill and brought it forward to uh, brutal superhero stories, you know? Ooh. So, um, yeah. So it, it, it's really cool uh, to be able to work with stuff like that. Um, the last thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, the army and everything I thought was fascinating. It's definitely, um, you know, more from the Grant style, you know, Ulysses has Grant style of fighting than the Robert E. Lee style of fighting, which is overwhelm your opponent with just sheer numbers and force. Um, but I thought it was also fascinating that he brought in that Japanese um, kamikaze uh, element to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, which brought me to my last point, which is um, the, in artwork, you know, Hindu definitely has the three faces of their gods and everything. But to me, the three faces also uh, reminded me of something that's a saying that's very common, common in Japan, which is that every man has three faces. The face she shows the world the face that he shows his friends and family and the face he never shows anyone, hmm. you know? And so it definitely reminded me of that philosophy, which comes from Zen Buddhism. So, um, you know, I, I thought that was a really fascinating concept to bring in there as well. And uh, the last part I'll say is just uh, the sheer amount of world building and thought that went into everything from the weapons to the armor, to the ships, to the tactics, to the architecture. It's all there. I mean, if this movie in itself, whatever anybody else could say, this movie should be required 
watching in film school on how to do world building mm. because I've never seen, and, and and this is a bold statement, but I will stand by it. I've never seen any other movie, maybe except for, you know, Dune and Dune, but Dune was a book first that was so in depth in building a science fiction world and society and making it lived in believable, interesting, fascinating, and wetting my appetite and yet leaving so much, you know, it's only the tip of the iceberg, like Steve said, so much more to explore. And you know, they've got all of that. They've got all oh, yeah. that information. They do, because once again, it's just like at the end of Jedi, when Vader kills the emperor, that doesn't mean the empire goes away just because the leader's dead. And Riddick has a few throwaway lines at the next movie about what he does, but there's no way the Necromonger empire would just crumble or stop. No way. They're still tearing through the galaxy in some form. But anyway, here's the thing about Lord Vaco and Dame Vaco. okay? First of all, and last of all, and everything in between, <laughs> remember I told you writers that if you can lift a character out of the film and the movie doesn't change, the character is extraneous. You can live Dame Vaco completely out of this movie and it's the same movie. That's the first thing. The second thing is you can't have over the top Shakespearean delivery if everybody else ain't doing it. You got to pick one. You got to pick a tone. And she's just so over the top all the time. And I'm still trying to understand why. What's the story reason that you are dramatic for the sake of being dramatic? Now, if I've ever seen a character actor that is never bad in anything, it's Urban. Mm. Urban's unbelievable. Lead character, supporting character, side character. He transforms himself into whatever the role requires and he disappears into that person. He's unbelievable. I've never seen Urban in, in, in I've never seen a bad performance, even if the movie wasn't good. I've never seen him where I didn't believe him. But Tandy Newton in this role, again, it doesn't serve any purpose to me other than like, I don't know, drama on the side or trying to motivate Vaco, I guess. But there wasn't any chemistry between the two of them. So I did not believe them as a couple, number one. Number two, uh, and this is a writer thing, whenever you show a what, you need to show a why. So why now? Was it because Riddick was there? And, you know, and, and just like I told you my favorite lines in the movie, here come my least favorite line. Do it now. Kill the beast <laughs> while he's wounded. I can't, oh my goodness. Every time I come on, I just, just feel the cringe. I'm like, let me just get some air spray to spray the cringe off. I can't stand it. I, oh, I can't stand it. <laughs> and I'm just like, because what is the point of that melodrama? And then she does the more combat line. Flawless victory. I'm like, no, babe, it's not flawless. So maybe you want to turn back around. You're like the dude that thought he shot nothing but net and it didn't go in. That's you. <laughs> so anyway, so it's just like, I just do not understand, nor do I like, nor do I need her anywhere near, near, near this movie. And I'm like, <clears throat> the other thing on top of what I've already said is that I want to know how Vaco feels. Were you doing that because you wanted to do that? Were you doing that because she pushed you to do that? Did you want to seize power all along? That's different from you felt railroaded or pushed or influenced or manipulated or 
you know, because the reason that's so important is because that's the difference between something that is wholeheartedly done and something that is not. You can have either motivation as a character or in real life, but you didn't show me why. Were you trying to shut her up? Were you trying to appease her? Is this something that was always stirring in your heart? Because if that's the case, maybe you were having what we call a crisis of faith. Did you really believe all the stuff you were enforcing or were you just biding your time? That's different. That's a very different motivation. And so that's what I mean when I say, I cannot make this character work for me, Tandy Newton's character, Dane Vaca, on any level. You can just pop her right on out and it's the same film. And the only thing is, again, Vaco's motivation, which I think would have been crystallized without her. If she's not around and he does that, we would have seen more clearly why. Is there a vengeance motive? Is there a revenge motive? Were you power hungry? Did you watch what was going on? He became jealous. Did you think like so many second in commands that you could do it better? Did you realize at some point he was a tyrant and you thought like so many misguided people, on the road to hell that you had some good intentions that, well, when I get in charge, I'm going to make it different. I'm going to make a difference. It's not going to be this way. That's what I wanted to see. That makes more sense to me as a viewer and as a writer, instead of kid, he's right. He's wounded. Yeah, really? <laughs> so that's my rant on that. So you guys feel free to jump in with some feedback before we move on to the next thing. Sure. Um, I'll jump in real quick. First on uh, Urban, I will absolutely agree with you on The Man is Unbelievable, especially since you can watch three of his movies and completely forget it's the same. You know, it's like I could watch Judge Dredd, this movie, and... Uh, and The Boys. <laughs> or Yeah, The Boys, and then and then throw in uh, Thor Ragnarok and be like, that's all the same guy? You know, it's yeah, like... And Born Supremacy. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's just... Is absolutely yeah, and Star Trek too. Like, I forgot that he's Bones. You know, it's like he, he, until you see the name on there, you're like, wait a minute, that's that's Carl Urban too. It's like, who? Well, the real Carl Urban, please stand up. You know, so you know, it's it's it is absolutely incredible, absolutely incredible that it's the same actor playing all of these things. Um, now, to address uh, Dane Vaco and 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 Lord Vaco, um, I wouldn't have. I absolutely agree with you. First of all, that her lines are way over the top. You know, it's like, sweetheart, you know, she's doing Celine Dion from that Ashes video. She's like, this this thing only does 11. You know, it's like, no, sweetie, you need to bring it down to five, maybe a four. This is Chronicles Riddick, you know? So it's like, turn down a little bit. Um, but I think that dynamic does make sense if we had seen more of that in the Necromonger society, if we had seen the wife and the political machinations behind the scene. What does the the wife of the Lord Marshal, what kind of power does she have? How does she wield power behind the scenes? Because without all of that, I think Dame Vaco's machinations cuckold Vaco and make him a weaker character. You oh, know, sure. because his motivations are not his own. He's acting on the motivations of someone else. I don't think Vaco ever had any intention of taking out the Lord Marshal. He's being pushed into it by his wife. And and that's interesting if we could see why the heck his wife is so intent on pushing her husband into harm's way in order to get power for herself. But we don't see that. We've never seen that. And so it, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. 
And without that, it cheapens VACO because we don't understand, uh, you know, what is the relationship between VACO and, and Dame VACO, and Lord VACO and Dame VACO? Why is he so willing to submit to his wife? You know, is he in love with her? It sure doesn't seem like he's really in love with her. It really doesn't. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a marriage of convenience or political alliance. So it's like, why why is he going along with this? So it's like, we needed a whole lot of more backstory for that to make sense. I don't have a problem with the idea, but the execution, I think, was lacking. So, Okay. Steve, what do you think? I think I'm probably closer to where Nem is on this. I do think it was a marriage of convenience. I think that's very clear. Yeah, there's there's no there's no romantic chemistry there, not at all. There may be like you know getting it on, you know, but that's the game they play. Like I don't think that there's anything beyond okay, she's scheming for power, and you know he is you know just kind of going along doing what he does, trying to advance you know within the military of the necromongers you know the, the whole thing and trying to keep each other alive i think a lot of that is you know that and her trying to glom onto him because she needs somebody who is more powerful than her uh to protect her because she can't protect herself and when uh that fails you know she's like okay well i'll, I'll turn to reddick and uh you know and that's where that that goes but fundamentally i think the idea was probably something like uh, this is the, the Lord and Lady Macbeth at the beginning of the play, which is um, he is the 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 hero who is tempted um, to kill the king, okay, and and she's the one driving him to do this. I think that that was the intent. It was kind of like to to sort of hit that vibe. That's why I call her basically Lady Macbeth um, <laughs> because I think that's exactly what she is. She is a schemer. She is somebody who's trying to use him. Uh, to get to power, and because she's not uh, part of the, the, you know, the the upper class to the extent of I cannot fight my way um, into power. I cannot kill so that I can keep what I kill. I need some to attach myself to somebody who can kill for me so that I can to reap the benefits of what he kills. So this, this so I can understand the conception of this. Um, I, I agree. It, it, yeah, it's it's really the execution, and yeah, and yeah, the performance um, was over the top, and I don't think any of that works. But um, I, I can understand the idea of needing her um, to basically say, "Okay, um, you're not really that good at playing the political side of necromonger society, and I am, so I'm going to worm uh, things in your favor." so that things would get to where they need to go in terms of the plot. I, I, I think that, that the conception of it works. Um, the problem is, is just, yeah, I mean, you know, she's not a likable character. She's not supposed to be, but granted. Uh, but she's not she's not a particularly likable character. And, and I don't feel like her scheming accomplishes as much as it could have um, overall. I, I, I really don't think we, we see that much of where her schemes really wreak a benefit. And a lot of times her schemes end up getting disrupted, especially by Riddick. Like Riddick mm. going, going, like showing up at the end of the movie, you know, ruins her entire plan. So, you know, so, okay. So we have a, a Lady Macbeth who really isn't very good at being Lady Macbeth. Uh, so, yeah, you have that. Um, Vako, I, I think, could have been a really interesting character. And this is another reason why I don't want another movie. Because I want to see... Like, where his thought process was, um, you know, in doing what he does in the third movie. And so I, I want to see, like, towards the end, this confrontation between Vako and Riddick, you know, just for that. Because he doesn't come across initially as being somebody who wants to betray the road more, Marshall. He comes across as somebody 
who is kind of pushed by his wife and by circumstances. Because I think on some level he has doubts about the Lord Marshal. I think at some levels he's not 100% sure about, you know, whether the Lord Marshal is somebody he should be following and whether he will survive at the end of this. So I think there's definitely doubts that he has that she's playing on. Um, but do we really find out, um, you know, how much of it is really him? No, not really. This is another reason why I think we need to see uh, his 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 part more uh, developed in, a, in another uh, another Riddick film because we just don't get nearly enough of this character. And I feel like there's potential. I feel like there's potential, but we're not seeing it. Okay, a lot of that was doing the work of the movie, as Bracey says. Uh, yeah, I can yeah, follow yeah. that. But what do you think, Bracey? What do you think about the whole Vaco stuff? Well. I gotta agree with you guys on Urban. It it took me some years to realize just how many things I'd seen him in because the man disappears into the role. Uh, like yeah. I didn't realize I'd seen him in Lord of the Rings and so many other things. Like I'd forgotten he was in you know Bourne films and just it just goes on and on and on until like he finally really started making that very visible impression. And you're like, crap, this guy's been in like everything, and he's so good that you don't notice it's Carl Urban where some actors can't help but uh, appear as themselves, even when they throw themselves uh, deeply into a role. You know, you see like uh, Heath Ledger as the Joker and you're like, okay, who's ever going to be able to do something like that? But you still recognize him as, as Heath Ledger. But like Urban, he just just kind of fades away in there. Even, even when I recognize his face and stuff, I have to go back and watch like, oh yeah. He was Euromore, you know, he was this guy, he was that guy. He's like crazy. And so that makes me do, that does make me want to see more of him. And I really hope he gets his chance to shine in upcoming films. Uh, a couple of thoughts about his place in Necromonger society, him and uh, Dame Vaco. Um, I was thinking about how their structure for the society reminds me very much of like medieval principles of a courtly society uh, combined with uh, the mirror universe ethics from Star Trek, uh, how you promote by killing, and then everybody up the chain gets to kind of take a step up. And I like this additional thing they've got, like you keep what you kill. Uh, so there's there's no backbiting there uh, until the next guy comes along. And there's always that next guy. There have been six Lord Marshals. Uh, in the in the original series with the mirror universe, when Kirk is transposed with his evil duplicate, the captain has a woman, and he's not interested in her because he's not that Captain Kirk. And she's like, "Oh, okay. If you found somebody else, whatever, transfer me to another ship. I've been a captain's woman, and I like it, and I want to be another captain's woman." So she's got her she's got her ambitions, and in a medieval courtly society. Um, you didn't have women who were warriors in the uh, European medieval structure. And that's what a lot of this feels like. Uh, you know, they weren't like samurai's wives who were trained to fight and defend their home while the samurai was away, things like that. So she has her way to rise is to attach herself to a powerful figure. And she's done that with Vako. And she's very much Lady Macbeth. She's very much pushing him uh, to be Macbeth. But he doesn't want to be Macbeth. Uh, he's very much a loyalist. He believes in the necromonger cause. And there's a there's a telling moment when he's... She's gotten into his head enough that he's even 
making the moves without being prodded when they're they're planning out battle strategy and he is creeping up behind the Lord Marshal, but then his undead self senses him and turns to face him and he confesses this uh, to her later when they have their little squabble back in the chambers. You know, at first he's all like against her and he's like, oh, you know, like I'm a loyalist, you know, I'm not like this, you speak treason. And then like when she's making out with him, he starts kind of like lit and goes like, I snuck up on him in perfect silence. And he sensed me. So it makes you wonder, has Vako been thinking about it? And I think a key thing said when the battle strategy playing is his his generals are being very practical. If they believe death is a reward, uh, nothing to fear. They're like, oh, you know, if we attack from this front, we'll get right into the teeth of them. We'll lose 20,000 men in five main battleships. That'll be fine. And Lord Marshall's like, yes, but that's not very artful. But it's not the goal to be artful. The goal is to convert or die. And I think that's what's giving Vako uh, his rethink about the whole situation. Maybe somebody else should be doing it, somebody better. Somebody who's got their eye on the prize. You know, if I'm over here, you know, being all fancy frou-foo, I've got a chance to lose. You have lost sight of the mission. You've lost sight of the tenets of our religion. You have become an egoist as opposed to the Lord Marshal. And I think this is what Lady Vaco is able to play off of because even though she's being like really over the top and I'm, I'm beginning to think that they were cast for not having chemistry because again, in a medieval sort of structure, a lot of marriages, especially with the aristocracy are arranged marriages, marriages of power because they clearly have this sort of structure. And I think because everybody's pulled from different aspects of society, she was probably pulled from some sort of aristocracy. So she's still got that kind of mindset. Vako has tactical and physical prowess. The people who, like all these common people, are going to get swept up from Helio Prime, they're going to be made into grunts. And you can see, they're, even though they're supposed to be all this kind of like equal society of these uh, people bound by this faith of death, there is a very clear delineation of structure. And like you guys, I wish, the movie's so dense we don't get into it, but I do wish we had time to really get more into their society and see how a lot of these levels of structure play out, because I think that's a movie all in itself. Well, not that I don't hear what you guys are saying. A lot of it is doing the work of the movie. If we're going to look at something like that, it would have to be like the other Bolin girl. Mm -hmm. Look at, you know, yet another take on the tutors yeah. where everything about what happens was about all the stuff you talked about, basically political chess moves. And so you can't have one eighth of that in a film like this and expect it to carry any real weight, at least not in my eyes. So uh, uh, so we're going to move on to my next favorite thing in this film, and that's Crematoria. Yes. Lord have mercy. So Crematoria is in the Igneon system, and it, it's home to the Crematoria Slam facility, which we're going to talk about. How do they build that? Uh, it has a 52 hour day. At night, it can get as cold as minus 300 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's got a 700 degree daylight temperature. I just, something about me, I just <laughs> love that number. I just love everything about that. But somehow it's got an atmosphere that's still breathable to humans and other life forms because I don't think the hellhounds are native to crematoria. So I get the idea 
uh, it's kind of like Ruripente on steroids. I get the idea of, of picking a terribly harsh planet to build a prison that you can't escape from because they know where to go because you get on the surface and you are over. So they said there's maybe 20 minutes of passable atmosphere. But I was like, I loved everything about it. I love about how sunrise means, you know, the dirt's coming up. It's like this solar tidal wave because <laughs> it's 700 degrees in 10 minutes. But I'm like, <clears throat> how did anything survive at all to get down there to bring, to build a prison? Do they have armor resistant enough to, to do it that long? And how do you get breathable atmosphere? And I know they're pumping it in, but are they pumping it in all the time? And what about the water reserves? So I just had a whole lot of questions because I love the planet, but I'm like, how does all this stuff function on it if you're going to make us believe what you want us to believe? And even though I did not believe the escape for a second, not even Riddick's part, I just did not believe it. I'm like, nope, nope, 700 degrees. Uh, the, the sun is so hot, the earth erupts into this sunstorm every time the sun comes up. And you're meaning to tell me you did a dick brace and night wing throw the batarang and hook the thing and you swung out in the sun <laughs> with some towels on. I'm talking about, I'm going to save you, kid. Hold on, I'm going to do my slow motion. I, let me do my slow motion night wings. No, you didn't. <laughs> and the people that were in front of you just turned around and died. It was so hot. They, they were like, oh, poof. There's like Pillsbury dough cookies all up in the oven. And then here come Riddick talking about you. I'll save you, Kira. I'm like, no, you, no, 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 you wouldn't. Unless you Furians are, you know, you can beat 700 degree sunrises. Like, are y'all that tough? But then the other dude that, you know, which is basically Necromonger Littlefinger, he goes out there later and he gets disintegrated and he's, he's breaking down as he's melting. I'm like, y'all need to pick some physics now. I love these physics, but you got to make them work in my head. So I need to hear your thoughts on crematoria because I love the planet. I want to go back there in another movie. I want to see how they built the prison. I love their weather extremes. I just don't believe the escape for a second. So what do you think, Nemesis? Um, yeah, I definitely hear what you're saying. Uh, I love the planet as well. I love everything about it, but there are some, some holes in it. <laughs> uh, I overlooked it because I was just, you know, just loving this whole setting and this scenario mm -hmm. and everything that was going on. But uh, the very first example that, that took me out of it was the fact that uh, the ship is coming in and they had to fly. At some point, they were exposed to the sunlight coming in mm -hmm. and it didn't affect the ship. But the minute they hit the planet and then the sunlight, when they were in the atmosphere, the sunlight started shining on the, shining on the ship. It was making the metal of that side of the ship bubble and everything. So it's like, why is it hotter, the sunlight hotter in the atmosphere than it is, you know, when they're exposed to it, when they're out in space? You know, I mean, maybe you could do some explanation for that, but, you know, you need to explain that one to me. Same thing with the people being uh, incinerated. It's like 700 degrees is hot. 700 degrees will kill you. 700 degrees will not disintegrate you. It just won't. It'll burn you. You'll die, but you're not going to just poof, be gone, you know, and just disintegrate. <laughs> At the same time, pouring a little water on yourself isn't going to save you from being burnt, you know. <laughs> so it's like, yes, there's those problems and everything. And, and 
and it's definitely you see it but there was some really cool stuff about it too i mean mm-hmm. like uh when they're running through the ash clouds in the volcanic region mm-hmm. that's absolutely amazing and and it actually feels that feels really real you know and really good um i also agree with you if we're just talking about the whole crematoria setup and scenarios as a whole um one of the things that i never believed was the fact having had to do a lot of road marches over hard terrain i don't care how windy the, the tunnels and stuff are under there trying to traverse 29 kilometers over hard terrain going up and down stuff there's no way in hell ever you were ever going to keep up with people that are running along metal grades no way by the time they did their 29 kilometers if you're going over train like that you've gone maybe four or five <laughs> and that's it I don't care who you are, you know, so yeah, uh, you know, if, if I start to break it down from a realistic standpoint, it does make a whole lot of sense, but I was so invested, you know, because mm-hmm. they got buy-in from me right from the very beginning because it was just so fascinating, this concept and, mm-hmm. and how they had to like rush into land and everything else that I was like, I'm putting rational Dave in the corner right now and I'm just going to watch this. So <laughs> Right, right, right. No, yeah, no, you kind of have to. Go ahead, Steve. Crematoria. Yeah, I, I'm kind of with Nemesis in the sense that um, a lot of stuff you real is really turn your brain off to a certain extent and enjoy it. But um, it goes back to what we've discussed, uh, particularly with the, the with Aliens, which is the movie earns it. Okay, we have uh, we have that emotional satisfaction that we get from this movie, and that overcomes a lot of these problems that you've already talked about. My whole issues was less with like those things, which, yeah, those are nitpicky. You can get into that. And how Riddick seems omniscient throughout this whole thing. And how all of these mercs are dumb. These mercs are really <laughs> stupid. And you can say, well, okay, well, they're intended to be stupid. Okay, I will give you that. And that helps justify it a little bit. But come on, they had to have known that Riddick was up to something. There is no way. They took him out way too easily. I mean, he's already like, okay, go and take me in. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? He's going to take you in and he didn't even fight you? And you buy that? Oh, come on. You know he's up to something. Why are you guys not acting like he's up to something or even point it out? No, you don't point that out. Because you're stupid and you're supposed to be stupid too, so that Rita can be smart later. Uh, yeah, not buying that. And also, um, there are points where Riddick seems to magically know everything that's going on uh between the mercs and uh anatoly who is the the head guard over there like he seems to know exactly when things are going wrong between them so that he knows you know when to make his big dramatic escape and i'm like really riddick is not that powerful i don't know what kind of fury and telepathy he is using to know this there's no way there is no way that he knows everything that is going on all the way up on the top without some kind of a communicator or, or, or some kind of a monitor where he's being told things or somebody on the inside who is feeding him information. There is no way that he would know those things. And so, I mean, that stuff is where I, I was just sort of saying, yeah, they're really kind of pushing it. I mean, in addition to uh, the whole business with the, with the, with the jump to, to save Jack, which I will say it is emotionally satisfying. I mean, you want him to save her. You know, you're happy when he saves her. Uh, but it's one of those cases where, yeah, uh, you know, okay, unless he has a fury and healing factor <laughs> that is that is taking care of this stuff, and we haven't been told, 
Um, and, and I can buy him having some resistance, uh, you know, just because he is a Furion. But having that much resistance where he's just like throwing some water on him and he's toweling himself and, you know, that's enough to save him from 700 degree heat. Okay. okay um, not really. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, it just seems like they, they like they, they tend to do this technique where, where some filmmakers do where they ratchet up the pace and they make everything life or death. And so the idea is, is that you're not looking at how much things don't make sense. So there's definitely quite a bit of that going on. But it's emotionally satisfying. It's fun to watch. I mean, I'm entertained. Um, it's, it's, you have to turn your brain off, but it's entertaining. You know what's funny about Riddick Omniscience is that somehow or another, after Pitch Black in this movie, that omniscience got transferred to all of Vin Diesel's other characters and other franchises. <laughs> <laughs> you look at Dominic Toretto has the same ability. He's like, it's going to go one or two ways. You know, like, what the hell? Where did that come from? <laughs> It's the, ancient, it's the ancient ancestor of Riddick. Yeah. Because <laughs> we all came from Earth, right? These are humans. Yeah. All right. So, uh, crematoria. Uh, crematoria. Man, again, what a fascinating setting. I love this idea so much. It is the, the idea of the desert taken to the nth degree, where it's freezing cold at night, blistering hot in the daytime. It's a great place to set up a prison. And even more so, if you've got a planet, uh, that quickly rotates between the two in hospitable atmospheres. Uh, now, getting my my sciencey kind of side to things, uh, I'm like you. I like I start wondering like how exactly does this work? Because uh, it's like, why didn't they just wait for a rotation or like uh, swing around to the dark side uh, to to fly in? Why expose yourselves to the sun at all? Like, couldn't you just hang out a little while someplace? I mean, Riddick's all chained up. He's good, right? I don't know. Like, uh, it, Tombs is, uh, I kind of like him, but he's he's dumb. Yeah, he's he's no Johns. Johns would have Tombs as lunch. Like, smack him. Give me your lunch, my boy. You don't understand what you're dealing with. And I, I forgive his crew because they don't seem to understand Riddick beyond just as myths like oh you know he's just another so he's got a rep so what so they all deserve to die at least the at least tombs first crew seemed to know what they were dealing with and they were rightfully scared <laughs> speaking of what was with that merc chick macking up on i do when she thought he was a trial sleep <laughs> i thought i thought she was getting ready to get a ride on you know what's up like what do you not know that he could take advantage of this in order to get out you don't know that i was like Doing that. Man, like uh, that's he can't consent and cry sleep. What are you up to, baby? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You gonna get canceled? <laughs> I was like, what kind of freaky stuff is going on here? <laughs> and, like Riddick's like, not all mercs are so bad. Yeah. <laughs> there's no movie that doesn't underscore that being a bad boy is the way to go. <laughs> Every time so, we see Captain Kirk. Kirk don't even have to say nothing. <laughs> Them women just walk up to him and surrender. <laughs> so, like, you know, the, the planet itself, I'm like you guys, like, how do you have an atmosphere on a planet that goes from so cold to so hot, so hot during the daytime that it immediately vaporizes any moisture that's left over from the night into an instant explosion of steam as you go, uh, creating this, you know, blistering uh, storm. 
and it's it's like you said, it's so gripping. You just kind of go with it. it. It's like uh, the whole thing when uh, Benchley was talking to Spielberg at the end of Jaws. Like, you're going to kill the shark? How? Nobody's going to believe that. The Brody's going to shoot a tank in its mouth. And like Spielberg was like, look, man, after the ride I've taken the audience on, they'll go wherever I lead them. And they're <laughs> right. If you build a satisfying journey, we will just put a lot of that aside and go like, this is awesome. And like when I run D and D games, uh, sometimes I let players do things for the rule of cool. You've come up with something so cool, <laughs> yeah. I want to yeah. see you try and pull it off. I really want to see this happen for you. And, now, and on another about, note, think about this. Yeah, go this ahead, man. The, this is the same group that will nitpick the hell out of a movie if you haven't got us bought into it. You know, yeah. so <laughs> that's but that right. just shows that's you right. that that shows you the skills of the creators here. Like if you can if you can make a bunch of nerds because nerds fixate on all kinds of crap like this. We sure do. If you can take a bunch of us and get us to just like I don't even care. You have done something. You've really done something here. Cause like we see the plot holes, but we don't care because we're so invested. Now as for Riddick's survivability, I have an answer for this. And again, you have to unfortunately you have to go outside the movie. Uh, you got to see, you got to check out things like the video games. Uh, you got to see like the, the little sci-fi thing that they did pr to promote Pitch Black uh, to understand things about the nature of Riddick. They, they do a bit of a retcon here. Uh, you know, he admits to Jack slash Kira that, uh, you know, she's like, I can't get eyes like that. there's nobody does eyes like that. Even though they put it into the sci-fi special, they clearly had this doctor. So like, yeah, I did his eyes shine and all that. So you guys suspect his motives now because in the video games, he sees an entirely different character, this doctor, who's kind of like this witch doctor shaman. They're getting into the whole mysticism, like you were foretold. And Riddick's eyes spontaneously shine over. At that first, was, uh, he, Butcher Bay, right? Yeah, that was Butcher Bay. And so he he looked a lot like the, uh, I forget the name of the religious character, the Proctor or whatever, the other Furian. Mm -hmm. He had normalized mm -hmm. like him. But he's of a different status. He's of an alpha fury, and this is why he can kind of enforce his will on animals. This is why he is just, he's even more powerful than a fury. Like, if you look at a fury, a normal fury is kind of like the Marvel Comics version of Captain America. They're the best a human being can, can be. Riddick has stepped up to MCU Captain America. So he's as far away from humans as you know, like MCU cap is to like a, a highly trained professional like Natasha or, uh, or, uh, or, or Sam Wilson. He's just, you know, the next evolution. So, and, and we see him do things like uh, in that opening sequence, he takes a, a spear through the leg, yanks it out and you never see him limp. Not once. He just kind of shrugs off, uh, shrugs off any damage if he has long enough to kind of like get over himself. So, Again, this is doing the work of the movie, uh, and it, it, it's too bad we have to go to supplemental material because I'd like to get all this stuff in the movie. But for those of you who are outside who might be wondering about some of what we said, this is what the broader expanse of lore kind of tells us, that Riddick is a step up above. And the Lord Marshal has met somebody like him because he does mention that I saw a man with eyes like yours once long ago. So we know this was a separate subset of the Furian race that they're just that much better, but maybe we'll like actually get uh, an in movie explanation with later films. Well, uh, <clears throat> I hope so because like I said, there's clearly 
while they did the Star Trek thing with Arion, the air mm. elemental, <laughs> they definitely had Furians have different classes, different types of powers, mm -hmm. different types of abilities based on who they were down to and including the eyes. Very, very true. Uh, just a brief mention that is going to help us feed into our final topic, and that's Riddick's exploits during the film. Uh, I love the cup killing scene. Uh, kill you with a cup. And said, no, it's a teacup. I love the cup killing. I love I kill you with my key. Love that. Um, it's so John Wick. Yes. Love how he uh, he basically yo-yos himself on his chain. Basically becomes a human yo-yo, which if you've ever tried to do something like that, good luck. Let me know how that turns out. And if you have a rib cage left when it's done, but rip your arms out of your sockets. <laughs> right, the kind of strength you would have to have to human yo-yo yourself like that and survive the process and not be sore and still live to fight another day. But it's so cool to look at. And I'm like, why don't y'all shoot him? But anyway, <laughs> you know, we have to ignore stuff like that because we have to get those cool scenes that I've already talked about. The Nightwing slow motion in the 700 degree weather to save Kira, but okay. <laughs> And then Kira's got the Joker boot. She's got the spike coming back. And that's got to hurt when you get kicked in the gonads with the spike all in. That's got to hurt. And uh, so so all of the cool exploits show he's like a mutant Furian. He's like Colossus and Wolverine Furian type dude. So all that's cool, which leads me to our final topic. Oh, yeah. And you talked about, uh, uh, Bracey talked about communicating with the Hellhounds, which I thought were funny because they look like a uh, Chester Cheeto cheetah to me. So every, time I, every time I saw them, I'm like, you got some Cheetos, dog? Because they look like they're bringing the Cheetos. I'm like, y'all supposed to be fierce dogs and everything, but I know you got some Cheetos back Flame on the side. The crunchy and the puffy because y'all been eating them because you're orange like they are. CGI wasn't there for them, but I did like the idea and the design, like the color changing and the, the rattling uh, scales. Right, and, and the again, Logan thing where you know Logan can communicate with the animals and everybody else can, and yeah, that, that was really well done. Right, right. Wolverine, Wolverine. <laughs> and, and they can they can smell when you're scared. They can smell when you were thinking that moment where they were walking by. Sure, hope they leave me alone. He's like, yeah, ah, I'm like, okay, <laughs> all right, all right, Mister Telepathic Cheeto. But anyway, so that leads me to the final thing, which is of course the final fight. And the final outcome between <laughs> <laughs> between between uh, Riddick and Vako and Kira and Lord Marshall, because they're all involved in the final scrap to varying degrees of success. And I must admit, as soon as I saw that they were going to do a Dark Phoenix slash dark supergirl on apocalypse story but i'm like oh my goodness you're dead hmm. you're dead now you're not coming back from being that dark version of yourself you you know so if you're faking i hope you give a sarah palin wink and you know just do that right quick and you know so we'll, we'll know you're faking but if we don't get that you know so she does the wink after she's been impaled i'm like you should have did the wink when you first came out you would have lived <laughs> so you know she's involved and and there's something that villains like about taking the hero's love interest or the hero's little sister or the hero's cousin or the Mary Marvel-esque type and turning her into black Mary Marvel. And now she's this 
whatever she is, they love that trope. As soon as I saw it, I was like, mm, mm. so that's going on. And so we finally see a situation that maybe the Lord Marshall hadn't anticipated where he's being attacked on two fronts. So he's being attacked as Vaca was coming down with uh, his battle axe. So he's teleporting slash morphing slash soul porting. But Riddick is right there on the other end, you know, smiling after that beating it just took. Mm -hmm. Standing there smiling like this is what I've been waiting on and just, you know, chunks the knife on in his head. And Vako and his wife, Dame Vako, thought that Vako killed him. But he finished the morph away from Vako and Riddick killed him. Which leads, of course, to Riddick, you know, keeping what he killed. And like you said, straight out of Conan sitting down and realizing, realizing I'm in charge now because I've killed the leader. And then, you know, before that happens along the way, then, of course, Lord Marshall kind of casually throws Kira, you know, into a statue and she gets impaled and she's like, I'm with you all the time. And really, fat lot of good that's doing you now, kiddo, but, you know, far be it from me to tell you to wink before you die. But anyway, so that whole thing, I thought it was cool. I thought it looked really good. Uh, Riddick became rocky to me in the moment. Like you can beat him and beat him and beat him. He's not going to stay down permanently. Like, okay. Mm -hmm. And then he figured out finally how to because when he first started fighting, it was like fighting Spider-Man. You can fight Spider-Man close quarters, but he's so fast. You can shoot him point blank range, but you can't hit Spider-Man this close to him. Uh, and so it was like that. And Riddick was like, you know, he's swinging, he's swinging, he's swinging, he's swinging. And Lord Marshall's just laughing, like, you know. So Riddick is like, yeah, I got you now. But, you know, he loses Kira, which again, bookends how we find him at the beginning of the movie and underscores that he's a nomadic loner character and that's how his life is going to be for a variety of reasons but now he's a inadvertent king and then the movie ends so then it's like oh my goodness wait 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 we need FOMO movies just to explain what happens next so I really <laughs> like the ending there were a lot of different elements going on I liked all of them I still wish Kira hadn't died to be honest with you, but uh, if she hadn't died, it, it would have been the adventures of Riddick and Kira, or she would have had to stay. And I can't see either one happening. I can't see her staying with the Necromongers. Why? And I can't see her staying on Crematoria. Why? So maybe she would take a ship and become her own, you know, kind of traveling thing. I, I don't know. Maybe we could have done that. Maybe kind of like uh, Thomas Riker in Next Generation, you know. Mm -hmm. Because I was sure he was going to die, but they didn't kill him. He left. I would have taken that ending for Kira before her dying. I just didn't feel like that was necessary. But overall, I liked it. Uh, I bought it. I enjoy looking at it, except for my most hated line in the movie, uttered by, you know, Dame Vaco. And then she does the Mortal Kombat thing. I'm like, no, no, nope. And, um, so I'm wondering about the conversation she and Vako had after that happened. Can you imagine, <laughs> can you imagine spending Never all that time? The end of this. <laughs> right, right. Can you imagine spending all that time and your wife is pushing you to kill the leader and take over power and she's been chomping at the bit for a while now. I think Dave Vako got promoted. <laughs> and you take a big old swing and it's a swing and a miss. 
And guess what? This Furion is the king now. And she was like, what? And Arion said, no, what would be the odds of that? Which I thought was really cool. So just give me your your thoughts on the end. I, I, I liked it. And it was such a perfect setup for we need to see what happens next. It was Empire Strikes Back levels of setup. Mm. So let me uh, <coughs> think about that. Start with Steve. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about Dan, uh, Judy Dench first because we I really hadn't talked about her that much. Um, okay. I get the feeling that she knows a lot more than she's telling uh, because of whatever mystical things are around her. And that's probably why she was staying uh, in part because of whatever things that she knew. And and the reason I say this is that the Lord Marshall, um, who I call like a uh, diet Rutger Hauer, <laughs> uh, shows up, <laughs> shows up and, and he, it's like, I want to get an answer out of you. And, and she provides the, the, the answer. Um, yeah, you will see the underverse soon. And I'm like, yeah, because, yeah, that, that was her couching the things like, yeah, I know you're mm. going to die. I know Riddick's going to kill your ass. Which is exactly <laughs> what happens. Which is exactly what happens. Um, and and I, I love that how she seems like she comes, she looks like this Gandalf figure, but she, she, she's a very manipulative and she's somebody who uh, is very hardcore when she has to be. I, I found her an interesting character um, and, and Judy Dench just plays it so well. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about that. Um, as far as the ending goes, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I will say I like the, the fight. The fight was actually quite good. And one of the things that I, I liked about it is Riddick uh, gets, um, is on the disadvantage like early on in the fight. And I like how Riddick, you know, the wheels start turning in his head and he starts to do, to do the, like what somebody like a Batman would do which is, okay, I don't know exactly, I can't keep up with you in terms of pure speed, but I can anticipate you, I can watch your patterns, and I know mm. where you're going to hit, and I am going to put my fist right there. And he mm. does this, and this is how he combats the speed. That was very smart. I really like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of that was really, really well done. And, and the way that the battle turns around in Riddick's favor, once he starts getting the... Uh, Die Rucker Howard's number is really, really great. I just absolutely love that. Um, I, 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 yeah, my pro biggest problem was Kira. I think that um, one of Tui's, it seems like one of Tui's biggest weaknesses is like he doesn't seem to know exactly the right point at which to kill a character. Um, hmm. And he did that with Fry hmm. last time, and he did that with Kira here. And, and he just seems to kill characters kind of like because he feels like Riddick should be alone or because he feels like, you know, there, there should be uh, a death at this point, um, you know, because he feels like it would be powerful or because it would be shocking or some reason. And it just doesn't have the impact that it should have. Um, and I felt that with Kira as well. Like, um, I, 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 can, I saw it with the Imam. Like, when the Imam died, I totally understood that because he needed to die to motivate Riddick uh, to get in this fight. You know, so, so okay, I, I get that. And plus he died to save his family. Absolutely no problem with that. With Kira, um, the only thing that I can see where that would be justified in some way is maybe that, okay, she failed the test with Riddick and joined the Mercs. And so maybe this is her karmic punishment for that. That's about the only thing that I can see where I can see it making some sort of sense. But overall, I just was like, nah, nah. I feel like there was more that, that she could have done. 
Yeah, I don't think that she would have stayed with the Necromongers either. I, I think you could have had some, you know, her going off uh, doing some other things. Maybe she would have begged Riga to come with her and leave the Necromongers. And maybe he decided, nah, I like being king too much. Um, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to make sure that they don't hurt you. Okay, something like that would have been okay. We could have seen her come back later uh, at some point, especially uh, once we see what happens with Riddick 3 um, and, 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 and that development. Maybe we could have seen her come back at that point and maybe something could have happened then. Uh, but I just feel like, yeah, Jack uh, or Kira was, was kind of wasted, especially with how much she grows and changes. I, I really did like the way that we saw her once she shows up in Crematoria. Um, you know, we saw her reconnecting with Riddick. Uh, but yeah, I, I, yeah, she should have signaled sooner that she wasn't with the Necromongers. You know, she shouldn't, she shouldn't have ended up that way. I, I just felt like that was a waste, um, it, it, a complete waste of a death, uh, because it doesn't accomplish enough. But I really felt like, an, on an emotional level, yeah, it was great. It was great to see Riddick fight the Lord Marshal. It was great to see him win after you know facing setbacks. You know, it, it was great to see you know him landing on the throne. You know, uh, after taking that last hit, and then someone realizes, "Oh my God, I'm king. What do I do?" And, <laughs> and then just that moment where it's and 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 like you, I wanted to see another movie follow up from that. Um, you know, and and we do see yeah. you know a movie, you know, but but we kind of see that things kind of change in the background after that. I don't think we saw what was the original plan. I think the original plan would have been to do more with the Necromongers, maybe see the Underverse, uh, maybe a new thread popping up. You know, maybe we could have seen what would have happened with that. Uh, yeah, we could have gotten several movies out of that. But it's just, it seems like the the bad reaction that this movie had gotten. And and I will say that in terms of box office, um, yeah, it might have been, it was, it, from what I gathered, it was considered a flop. But it made more money than Pitch Black. So it made more of the most money out of all the Riddick films. So that should have bought it some leeway. But unfortunately, I feel like, they felt that it was a failure, so we didn't see like what Tui originally was going to do with this idea. And it's just kind of just there's just so much potential, and this this universe is so much depth to it, and we're just never going to see that. But the setup was really nice. Um, I, w- I would say if they hadn't done what they did with Kira, I think it would have been you know just absolutely like that because it was just perfectly enjoyable and satisfying. And and you want to see the movie end on a, on a note uh, where everything is resolved. But it leads into wanting more, and it left you wanting more, and 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 in that it it succeeded. Well, I always thought I always thought that Kira would want to roam the galaxy on her own anyway, and I thought her experience in this film would have been like a confidence boost, mm-hmm. and to, you know, to take her confidence and her knowledge to the next level about what she could do on her own, and she'd want to get out there and see how that played out. So, anyway, go ahead, Bracing. Thoughts on the different uh, views, panorama, experiences of this ending. Uh, I'll, I'll jump into Judy Dench as well, since uh, we didn't really cover her that much. Uh, Arianne is an interesting character because she says elementals calculate. And in her own way, this makes her every bit as ruthless as the Lord Marshal or Riddick when he needs to be. Uh, she's not without feeling, but as people... A people without a religion, and what they do is they calculate. So they're very, very secular, very science is what I'm getting from this. And so uh, in her world, everything is very black and white. And there's a balance between the two. And that's what she keeps talking about is this balance. 
and whatever it takes to balance out those scales is what she and her people will do. So I would like to see a greater exploration of that character and her particular culture as well. Because mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of meat there on that bone, too. Uh, the final fight was very satisfying. Uh, nothing more satisfying than Dame Vako's scream of, No! <laughs> After Vako failed to uh, take off the Lord Marshal's head. Because as, as a character who was my least favorite in the film, that like that made me feel good. It made me feel really good. You don't get your way. Uh, unfortunately, the, the thing with Kira... I was expecting she would have to be rescued. But as soon as I saw that she had been turned, I immediately went, that's predictable. And she's going to die now. (laughs) I just knew it right away because now she has not failed one test of purity. She's failed two because the necromongers offer you a choice. And so she had to accept. And maybe that's part of survival. Uh, but as Riddick would say, if, if she's going to try and follow Riddick's code, I bow to no man. So, you know, she, she failed his test twice. So she's out totally out. Uh, I do hope we see her in the underverse, uh, in subsequent films, uh, Mm. if they get made, uh, because I really want to see that. And to give you an idea of where, uh, things are going as of the writing of the novelization, Riddick takes the throne and then we have a scene after that. Now, I really like the the way they ended the scene for the film. I thought it was very powerful. Him on the throne with that that hand on his troubled brow, kind of like old Conan, and it, like as the realization hit him, you keep what you kill. Like that that old oh crap moment. Like I'm responsible for all of this now. What the heck am I gonna do? I'm a loner with a kingdom. Holy crap! <laughs> like I got no clue, man. In the novel, he has a clue. If you'll remember, before he starts the fight with the Lord Marshal, um, one of the things that separates Riddick from, from Wolverine for me is the fact he doesn't seem to have the inherent rage. Now, I know they're Furians, and I know he does have anger, and he can let the monster loose and all that, but you rarely see him actually express rage. Most of the time, he's like very calm, very cold. If it's a rage, it's a cold rage, very controlled. But he approaches Lord Marshall, and with this, not just fury, but also anguish, he looks at me, he tells him, you've killed everything I know. Because he's never really let anything in. So he's killed all of his friends, all the people in close. He's killed his whole world. He's By the priestess, he's been given visions of his dead world and all the graves. And so there's so much riding on this fight. And that's one of the things that makes this whole fight so great and so emotional is uh, because we've seen Riddick be such a killing machine of man and monster. And here's something that really, really challenges him. This guy who's got at least twice the power of a very powerful man because he's got the soul and himself fighting in unison. And uh, it, it's, it's a great show of, again, the survivalness that uh, always comes into it. Riddick's adaptability because only those who can adapt will survive. And Riddick adapts. He figures out his pattern. He starts turning the tables on him. But it's great to see him get tossed around for a while, you know, because in order for your hero to look really good, your villain has to look really good. And I hate seeing weak villains in final fights. Like, for instance, uh, when we did Birds of Prey, 
we had all these bad guys running around fighting, you know, all these goons. We had these cool fights, you know, they're bouncing around in like Harley's little fun house. And then when we get to Black Mask, he's nothing. He should be the baddest of the bad. Or him or Zaz, Zaz is nothing. Zaz gets taken out like a punk. The the two supposed biggest threats. How do you keep charge of all these bad guys if you don't have the muscle or the menace to do it? Disappointing. Lord Marshall did not disappoint. He gave us a credible threat to a guy who we've seen can take down anything he comes across, man, machine, or beast. So that made that, that final uh, ending fight just so much more cathartic by the end because it was a real struggle with real stakes. The whole known universe is at stakes as far as like human habitation. And so the film ends here, and the book ends with one extra scene. Riddick is standing on the bridge of his command ship, and the fleet has left Helion Prime, and they're out in space, and they're flying away. And the Vako or some other attendant comes up to him and says, like, where to, Lord Marshal? And he goes, straight to the Underverse, because he's not going to pillage the galaxy. Riddick is done. He's lost everything and everyone, even his history and his culture and his world. He just wants to get it over with at this point, and he just wants to go see what's on the other side of this wall between life and death. Fantastic. As always, that book knowledge. Go ahead, Nemesis. We didn't hear from you yet. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on the ending? Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of what Jeff was saying there. Um, let's see. Let me get into some some specifics here, though. Dame Judy Dench is uh, an Arion, or Arion. I don't know why I keep wanting to call her an Arion. I'm like in, <laughs> in token mode or something. i got to add some more high elf on there. Um, she is a very Tolkienist character. Yeah, and she really is. That's what I was going to say. She reminds me a lot of the, um, you know, some of the token uh, high elf characters or the, mm -hmm. the spirits there. She's very manipulative, so much so um, that, you know, she tells us right at the beginning. It's like sometimes when you're fighting evil, you need another form of evil, you know, to kill it, to fight it. You know, and I think that is telling because, yes, um, I still think I still say that Riddick is a form of uh the devil of, of a lucifer it's it's a form that is not common in in stories and in our in our you know the way we approach religion and everything but it's very i, I dare i say it's jewish um the jewish form of the devil is very much a tempter a person who's trying to constantly get you to fail um they don't take active steps to destroy you they want you to destroy yourself and I think that's a lot of what you saw with the Imam and, and with Kira, you know, like Jeff was saying, Kira failed twice. Uh, Kira failed. You know what the, uh, do you know mm -hmm. what the devil means in, in Jewish uh, lore? It means, a, it means yeah, accuser. Yeah, the accuser. Yeah. Accuser, yeah. Right. And then uh, it also means adversary or enemy. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, that's what Satan means anyway. Yeah. I like that's why it fits into his idea of uh, Riddick because he's testing people. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and you look at Kira, I mean, she joined the Mercs, but also, if you if you look closely at the scene where she thinks Riddick is dead, she abandons Riddick. Uh, the Necromongers didn't take her on the ship. She ran to get on that ship. Yeah, you know, and so three strikes. Yeah, you know, so um, <laughs> I'm not gonna say she brought it on herself, but she kind of brought it on herself within the context of Riddick and his world and the way things work when when you when you don't live up to whatever his standards are. 
I do agree with you. I think that if they ever go to Underverse, there's a good possibility that she could be alive there. Maybe even that's how Furia gets repopulated. I mean, there's a thought. A bunch of Furians coming back from the dead, you know, from Underverse. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's something you don't want to see. Um, the Lord Marshal, I absolutely agree with your statements there. So many times these fights we get that the, the boss, you know, the end boss is weak. You know, instead here we get an end boss where uh, the end result is really in doubt. Even though we know that Riddick's going to win, when we're in the throes of watching the movie, we're kind of worried he's not going to, mm -hmm. you know, watching it. And um, too often, that is not what you get. I mean, there's certain comic book characters where the best times are when I'm, you know, Superman is a great example. My favorite Superman stories is where I'm seriously worried that Superman's going to die. Too often when he's fighting like Joe Schmo on the street, I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so it's, it's the exact same thing here. It's like if Riddick was fighting 40 dudes, I'm like, yeah, Riddick's going to tear through these guys. But with the Lord Marshall, I'm really worried. Which brings me to another comic book point, which is one of the coolest things about the Lord Marshall in this fight scene, it's going to be my last point, is – he shows the weaknesses of a certain type of super speed. Hmm. The Flash is moving continuously at super speed and can change directions and everything. But there's a different type of super speed. And, and oddly enough, you see it in another movie, and they explain even better in that movie, a movie called Priest, with another character actor <laughs> who, who just disappears, Paul Bettany. And Carl yeah. Urban is in that movie as well. Yes. Disappearing. And the vampires there move the same way the Lord Marshall does. And Paul Bettany's character explains it's very easy to hit somebody with super speed when you move that way because as long as you know the start point and the end point, you know, or the start point and how fast they're going, you can figure out the end point and have a bullet there waiting to impact them, you know. And that is exactly what Riddick does here with the knife. He knows the start point, he knows the end point, and he puts the knife there to waiting for at the end point. And I think that's a cool concept i wish they did that more in comic books because it's a weakness of speedsters if they're moving in that way i think it's just a really really cool concept and uh it's one that i loved i love that whole infight scene because rick is getting destroyed and he wins by thinking by having the instincts of a fighter and using the talents he does have and and that is a sign of a character that can Improvise, you know, to, to borrow my mil some military terminology. There you go. Come on, say it. Yeah, improvise, overcome, and adapt. You know, so you know, and so, uh, yeah, that's just absolutely fantastic, and and it was really fast, uh, satisfying. And then, like you guys talked about, the the last scene of the movie with him sitting on the throne. I mean, I was waiting for dum 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 dum. You know, <laughs> to Conan's music, you know, there. So it's like. It's definitely what it was. And, uh, yeah, everybody who's ever watched the Conan movies, you know, immediately recognized it. And it, and it was very satisfying. And and honestly, if they had never given us Riddick 3, I would have been upset. But you could have left it there, and I would have been like, you know, okay, this makes sense. And I think that was kind of the point. I think that was kind of the way reason that David Tui left it there, because I don't think that he thought he was ever coming back to this. So, Well, that is one of the few tropes I'm not tired of that being the reluctant king. I still like that trope. There's still a lot to be done with that, at least in my mm -hmm. mind. But there are spiritual ramifications, there are heavy political ramifications, but there's resource ramifications. 
all that firepower, all those ships, all those people. And we know that they're not totally converted, meaning that their belief system, uh, their original belief system, they still have it. Maybe they suppressed it or maybe they just don't live by it anymore because they didn't want to die, but they didn't give it up in their soul. There's so much more there, so much more story to be told. And so maybe one day somebody will pick that up. All right, well, we're gonna call it there because we could go two more hours on this film. It's just fantastic. And, and again, the more I look at it, the more I really don't understand the, the ugliness of certain criticisms, except to say, no, it was not pitch black to you. And if that's what you were expecting, I can understand why you'd be disappointed. But it did take us literally to new places, multiple new worlds, introduce new characters, new ideas expanded the mythology on the main character and yet retained mystery. I mean, I, it's just a W. It's just a win to me. I don't see how, how we call this movie a fail on any level, nitpicks notwithstanding. I think it was fantastic. And the biggest telling sign to me is that to this day, we still want more. 2004 film, still want more. More of the character, more of the story world, more of the supporting characters more of the ancillary characters. That doesn't happen uh, 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 without something like a Star Wars level hit, but mm -hmm. it happens here. So that's why I think it's just an unfair rap that this movie maybe wasn't what you were expecting, but it, it goes beyond those parameters. And again, very few filmmakers can do what Tui do, does here with this film. So I just give it high marks. I just give it kudos. All right. Well, I want to uh, thank my co-host for another great pod. Thank you so much, Nemesis. Uh, no problem. Uh, love talking about this movie. I love this movie. Uh, yeah, I, like you said, I just want to know more all the time. I'm really shocked to this day. Uh, I don't know what the deal is, but I wish that they would allow some writers to write expanded universe books on all the various human races and everything else, because I think this is a Dune level franchise for novelization. Mm. Well, that means we should write it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bracey. <laughs> uh, always a pleasure to be here. Uh, for those of you out there who wonder what it might have looked like with uh, with uh, Riddick as king, check out Robert E. Howard's Call the Conqueror, where a barbarian takes over the, uh, the, the uh, civilized city of Volusia. And uh, if you want to see David Toey on a, a smaller scale dipping into horror, which is another great uh, passion of mine, Check out the very excellent haunted submarine film below. Awesome, awesome! Thank you so much, Doctor Steve. <laughs> well, uh, thanks. I'm glad to be here. I I really enjoyed this movie. I, I don't understand why this movie gets as bad a rap as it does. Um, yeah, it's very different, but it opens up a mythology. It makes this world its own rather than seeming like something that started off with Alien. Um, it's something distinct. It's some place you want to know more about. Uh, and Riddick is just an amazing character. So every time I hear an announcement that Vin Diesel is doing uh, more Fast and the Furious and not this, I get disappointed because I feel like there's so much to be said with this franchise. Yes, it's like, and they talked recently about, oh, how uh, Fast and Furious deserves an ending. Yes, it does. So does Riddick. Please do more hey, Riddick. I will say right now, pre-production for Riddick 4 is supposed to start next year. So okay. please, please, yes. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All right. That's it for this episode. Uh, we're going to continue our review of the series. So definitely stay tuned and check out the other shows we have available on the United Capes Podcast Network. 
And we will see you next time on the next episode of Sloppy Spoilers. 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 Spoilers.